Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by James Hornick, a partner at Hirewell, where he specializes in recruiting of marketing and technology professionals. James has created Hirewell's digital experience and marketing recruiting practice, while also leading the firm's internal strategy, marketing, and business development initiative. James is a proponent of value-driven content and sarcasm. In his spare time, he trades financial derivatives, lift weights, and struggles to learn Spanish. James and I have known each other for a while, and I've been meaning to have James on the show. was kind of waiting for the right time, and I think this is the right time. We had a great conversation talking about the current state of the recruiting market, what companies are getting wrong in their return to office efforts, and why that's actually costing them employees, or why it will cost them employees if they're not careful. And we also talk about the value of being a thought leader and how to actually slow down and take time and be thoughtful and build some expertise and how to get that message out to the market in a meaningful way. There's a lot in here. James is a very thoughtful guy. He is one who is never just going to go with the flow. He's always being very critical and thoughtful and looking at things to really figure out what is working and why. And I think that's what is going to make this so helpful for the folks who listen to it. So hope you enjoy it. Here is James Hornick. And we are live. James, Welcome to the show. What's up, Brian? Do people on your show call you OB or is that just like a nickname your friends call you? Is it, uh, well, up until <laughs> you just said that, it was probably mostly friends, but now it'll okay. probably be many more people. So however you want to refer to me during the conversation, feel free. I've had it slip out a few times with guests. So yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're casual. Say, call me whatever you want, swear whatever you want. You know, we're all good here. All right. So I'm excited to have you on. I think you fall into the thought leader bucket when it comes to recruiting and traction and retention of talent. So Why, thank you. this will be a I fun <laughs> conversation. You're always full of hot takes. So I'm interested to get some of those here today. Just to like lay some groundwork though, could you just explain like what you do, who HireWell is, what work you do? Sure, sure. So HireWell, we are a recruiting firm based in Chicago. We recruit nationally. I guess I'll give the quick sales pitch, which I give like 10 times a day. So the background is I've been here since 2005, so 16 years. When I joined, we were four people, and now we're about 70. So growing a lot kind of in that time frame. One of the partners, when the very, very early days, we were just tech recruiting because you only got a few people you have to kind of pick your spots or you're going to specialize in. But our goal was to really always build the organization as something where we could help solve more strategic or more difficult hiring challenges. That's a, another way of saying that is like we have now five teams of very specialized recruiters. So it's not just technology. We got an HR recruiting 
probably 12 years ago is the second area we got into. So that team, you know, tech team does like devs, DevOps, cloud computing, all that kind of stuff. The HR team does actually places internal recruiters. But beyond that, they also do HR generalists, total rewards, DEI, all this kind of specialty niche areas. We have a team that does sales recruiting. We have a team that does finance and accounting recruiting. And then probably 2014, 2015, myself and my colleague, Don Marigos, we built out our digital experience and marketing team. So that was actually a lot of fun. There was, without getting too deep in that kind of rabbit hole, there was a big shift in the market and how the amount of companies in embrace digital. Because previous to that, not that many did. It was like agents or agencies and e-commerce firms, big brands. But that's when like everyone, every software firm, every real estate firm started doing digital. We built that team out. I bring this all up and get into that detail because after two years of recruiting marketing people all day, we're like, wait, why aren't everyone else is doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Like, why aren't we doing stuff in digital? So my role actually has kind of evolved again from there. I we then st- started doing some things, just kind of like all hands on deck redoing our website, doing some blogs, like just kind of kind of getting basic into content strategy. What really, you know, it was some probably limited effectiveness, you know, we kind of do the things that everyone kind of does as the basics. What really helped us from a BD standpoint, kind of lucked into video. So I was giving doing an event at the American Marketing Association. They asked me to be a speaker for like a job seeker event or something like that. This is like two and a half years ago, something like that. And they said, hey, can you help promote it? You know, and I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? And I just kind of pull out my phone because I saw people right around then started doing video on LinkedIn. And so I just pulled out my phone and said, hey, here's the event, you know, come if you can make it. And it got like 8,000 views. And it was like a crappy selfie video that just didn't really. And the guy was, it was different back then because there weren't many people doing videos. So everything got more traction. But you realize that like embracing LinkedIn and social and, and stuff like that and making more rich media has a way bigger impact than I think a lot of people realize even still. It's really kind of transformed our business. Like my role right now at Hirewell is basically I do our business development, I do our kind of business strategy, and have a lot of that's very marketing heavy. So I'm doing kind of podcast video events. We have a whole kind of content team where our goal is to be able to come thought leaders in the space. We talk about things our clients are talking about, things that job seekers are talking about, and try to deliver like original ideas based on these things, not just rehashing kind of the norm. And it's worked out well. So, so let's just go down that rabbit hole for a minute because I think that that stuff's interesting too. What was that process like to switch into that type of a marketing approach? I mean, it's a lot more time intensive. And to really be a thought leader, you really have to take time and think, right? I had a, a guest on who just came out with a book, Be Yourself, and it talks all about how to create these strategies. And one of the chapters is called Thought Leaders Think. And so what was that process like for you? Did you get any pushback internally on being like, yeah, we don't have time for this. Like what, what was the evolution to get into that and to actually like create the time to do it? I would say this, like, I don't think I got any pushback. There were probably some, there, there is always going to be some initial doubt if it's going to work because two things happen when you're starting out. One, you suck. Like your content's not going to be good. Like there's just no way around it. You're not going to be comfortable on camera or your podcast, or it's going to take you a while in several steps to evolve to a point where people are going to really respond to it. So it's going to be like any good. The second thing is, even when you do that, it still takes, it's branding, it's repetition. Like it takes a while for you to get some traction. So even if like you're knocking it out of the park, like chances are the first three months you do something, you're not going to see any significant results right away, you know? And that's, I think, where a lot of places, you know, they try it, they think it doesn't work, then they stop. Not to mention on top of that, the other thing is you have to have stuff to talk about, which is, I think, which is where I think most people fall flat. Like half the time when I'm looking at LinkedIn, it's, 
people talking about posting on LinkedIn. Like it's like the most boring thing ever, you know, it's like, like, as opposed to like, let's discuss issues and things that are happening that are relevant right now. The hack for that, the trick for that, it's not really a hack is just like, you just have to, we internally have a group of people and we just kind of have a brainstorming session based upon what are our clients saying? Because if all you do is take questions your clients have and answer them, but in the form of content, like that's stuff that's going to be relevant to other people. Like your whatever customer told you they had to ask you about something, they're not the only person to have that question. Probably everyone has that question. So if you just kind of keep it focused on, okay, what pressing things are out there right now? What do people want to know about? What are people unsure about? Do we know how to answer that, address that? That's your content. And you'll get some traction that way. So, And is that how you advise your clients when it comes to recruiting for their own content strategy? Yes. And I can kind of dovetail into that. I think that, so I, one of the shows I do is with a, a friend of mine, Nate Guja. He's more focused on the actual employer brand side. So like I'm in recruiting, he's in kind of employer brand and content. We call it the employer content show where it's focused on strategies that will help you hire. I think there are two things. We're actually in the middle of a kind of a, a larger project we're doing for that right now, where our thesis is, if you want to attract job seekers, you have to basically give them the information they want. But what's that really mean? What do job seekers ask during the interview process? How do they make decisions? What is it that usually doesn't come out till later on that they want to know about a company before they decide? If you're not addressing that up front, you're missing an opportunity. You're inadvertently gating that, you know? So I actually had some examples. Well, find where they were, but there were a lot of things in terms of give me an example. So we did this for marketers. We actually put a survey out. You know, the survey was kind of basic, some qualifying things, but it was really three questions. What do you ask during interviews? How do you make a decision? It's really the kind of the same thing is asking through kind of three different ways. Number one, like every marketer wants to know what the leadership is. Like, does the CEO actually get marketing value and understand it? Is the CMO actually someone who's a real CMO who has a strategy or is it someone who's just kind of like, doing kind of the, the basics and has like an inflated title. Like everyone wants to know who they report to. And this is true across every group. Like, is this person who's hiring a sales leader, this tech leader, someone who has it together, someone who's a visionary? Is it someone I can get along with? Like that's huge. You know, another thing is kind of related to the marketing one. Is it an administrative function or a strategic business function? That's what every marketer wants to know. So if you can articulate, okay, this is what strategy we're running. This is why we're doing things. This is why we're making decisions. That's going to attract people to apply like on the front end. What's the relationship with sales? That's always another thing that marketers want to know because a lot of times it's a very strained relationship between marketing types and sales types. If you can address that kind of on the front end, that's like another objection or something people are going to want to know like later on in the process, bring that to the top of the funnel, bring that to the front. I don't need to kind of keep going further into these, but there's there's tons of things you can find out just by running surveys of the skill sets you hire for. What do people want to know about your organization You know, later on? Give that to them before they even apply. Got it. And I want to get in, like, I want to dive deeper into some of this stuff. But before we do, like, we are recording this right now in the summer of 2021. Return to office is a big topic right now as we hopefully, fingers crossed, are kind of rolling out of the COVID-19 pandemic. What is the state of the hiring market right now? Like, are companies, are you seeing a lot of growth? Are you seeing kind of status quo? Is, is it really dependent on an industry still? Like, What's your take on just like the state of the employment market today? I mean, it's nuts right now. Like I can, this is not hyperbole. I would say last year at this time was the most depressed market I've ever seen in my life. 
this is the most out of control runaway hire as many people as you can market i've ever seen in my life not even what's close. causing that i think a couple things so here's uh, uh, let's talk about our business right so recruiting was terrible business to be in a year ago from now right like it was like june july august were, were not good months unless certain areas of tech and certain areas of sales but like for a lot of the functions we recruit on like no one was hiring we place internal recruiters just to give you some context so companies come to us when they need to hire it's next to software developers it's the second most commonly placed position we do across the organization on a yearly basis last april to september i don't think we made a single recruiter placement that no one was hiring recruiters because those are the people who do your hiring this year i think we've placed 15 every month so far and we placed double that if there was a more better supply like everyone's hiring recruiters because everyone has recruiting needs because they're hiring so many people What's driving it, last November, we had at that time, which was one of our top five busiest months ever in terms of revenue, right? We thought that was just catch up. That was okay. The year was depressed. Things weren't as bad, but eh, this can't sustain. January on, every month is beating that. Like we're having our biggest year ever. And I think part of it was catch up. What I really think is happening is organizations realize that certain, what I call office dorks, basically everything we recruit on, your tech people, your marketers, your sales, like so many organizations did just fine throughout this pandemic. And when you realize that other areas don't, and I don't mean to sound not sensitive to the fact that a lot of areas are kind of crushed, but tech forward organizations, like a lot of them grew like gangbusters in the, during this whole thing. And when you see stuff like that, like where's the investment money go? Private equity firms, VC firms, like everyone doubles down because they realize that like this is where the safe play is. There's more money put into it, more places are growing, or companies can just easily more justify, hey, we made through last year, no problem. Let's just like let's just blow this thing up and keep growing. So I think it's part of its catch up, part of its kind of more companies making more strategic investments because of what they saw was possible. That's my take. Yeah, and I would say that I've seen that too. I mean, just the number of companies that are getting funding and looking to expand right now the it's funny you talk about recruiters being such a hot job i've had two or three people reach out to me in the last two weeks saying hey do you know any good recruiting leaders like we're trying to bring in people here so that's yeah it's funny because i'm seeing that too on my end have you seen any changes in how this recruiting is being done now versus how it was being done 18 months ago like we've all just lived through, you know, a lot of us have lived through being virtual for 18 months. How are you seeing, as we're, we are starting to go back, how are you seeing recruiting change? Like th- what changes have companies made and what do you think will stick as we come out of this? In terms of process or more in terms of like strategy or because I don't I know. I mean, I guess that, either, right? Like what? Yeah. I mean, I guess I could talk more high level about issues that. I don't know. I think recruiting became easier from the standpoint that it's easier to interview people when they're all remote. You don't have to worry about like, this is very obviously very tactical. So you don't have to schedule a full day interview with somebody where they have to take a day off from work to go talk with a bunch of people. So scheduling just, you can set up Zoom calls everywhere, right? So that became way more streamlined. So people were able to interview more places, job seekers I'm talking about, companies were able to schedule more easily. So that from a, a strict process standpoint became a lot easier to do. I still think that there's a lot of things that still hold companies back. And I think that might be a a more interesting kind of topic about this. Like, I think that there's still a lot of companies that don't really have a good strategy. I think that everyone understands how important hiring good people are, how good people is, but 
when it still comes to recruiting, they look at their recruiting staff as a very tactical function. There's a position open, you fill it. There's another position open, you fill it. We have more positions, hire another recruiter. We don't have as many positions. Okay, get rid of some of the recruiting staff. We don't need them anymore. Yet there's, whether it's from a company standpoint, they realize there's so many inefficiencies they have. They, everyone knows their messaging can be better. They're like, there's so much value in having trained interviewers. You know, there's so much value in under, being able to track candidates and see who could reuse again at some point in time or kind of revisit. Job seekers are sick of getting like ghosted on, not getting feedback on, and all these fixes to make these things more streamlined and more efficient. These are this is strategic strategy work. Like it's setting up processes, it's setting up better technology, it's all this kind of stuff. But in a lot of organizations, it just falls by the wayside even still. Is that just because you have the person who's leading the function still doing so much of the day-to-day recruiting because the volume's so high, they just can't get out of the weeds to build these systems out? I don't know if it's so much that is that maybe they don't have enough clout within the organization to be able to justify. I mean, when you're talking about having people doing strategy work, like you're pulling them off something else. You know what I mean? If you're, if you have a recruiter that is typically filling 15 position or has 15 open recs on their deck and, and you're telling them, okay, now you only have 10, but we need you to spend 30% of your time doing developing content or integrating things in our AT or these other kind of more strategic functions. It's hard for these places to justify because they just see that as a cost. You know what I mean? Or now we have to, okay, we have to hire more recruiters for this. We're getting less output. Yet they kind of miss that if you have those things done well, it makes handling those spikes easier when they come up, when like the you know recruiting spikes come up. It also it enhances everything else you do. It makes it so there's not as much hair on fire work that needs to be done all the time. Everything's not a fire drill. I've said for years that like recruiters aren't typically value enough for organizations because people, a lot of people in the company, like they see product as being super strategic and important. They see, you know, their software development or their marketing, but recruiting, yeah, just, just find somebody to find me people, you know. It's just not not thought of by a lot of executives as something that's as high value as it really is. Well, and like it occurs to me too, like somebody who's really good at finding people might not be really good at strategy. Like those are two different skill sets to be able to get in it, build a process, work the process, get the people in the door, interact with those people, like keep that moving, manage all that. I mean, that's like a project management function in some aspects. But if you break things down, I think that if you want to keep good recruiters there, you have two levers you can pull. One Either you have to have, it has to be exciting because you're hiring like bonkers in perpetuity, right? Doing some cool stuff, company's growing, you've got an interesting pitch, or you just have to be, give them something else to do that's more strategic focused, I think. So like training your interviewers is important. You know, if you're in a, your interview team and talk about your hiring managers, everyone, their team, like it's important they know how to interview properly. And your recruiter is the person who should be doing that. And if you don't prioritize that, then things then you've got interviews are going to go south. They're going to go poorly. You know, like there's a lot of aspects of bits to this, you know what I mean? That I think aren't, you know, I'm not talking about someone like creating the strategy per se. Maybe that's like your head of TA, but in terms of executing those things, this, this tasks that are more aligned on the strategy area, like it's something you should definitely have your recruiters being able to do. And it falls outside of just like finding people. So you place a lot of rec- recruiters. Curious if you have any perspective on this next question, which is like, the recruiting function, as we're talking about it now, is made up of a lot of parts, right? There's the project management of it, there's sales, there's marketing, there's human behavior, psychology, interviewing. Do you see most recruiting departments training their people on that full spectrum so that they're actually becoming 
experts at the craft or do you see them just more focused on getting the job done? Well, you have to understand too that a lot of, there's a difference between like agency recruiting, which we do and internal recruiting. And this is not to bag on internal recruiters, but there are definitely a fair amount of them that their job is really just posting jobs, taking applications, setting up interviews. Like there are a fair amount of internal recruiters that don't do any sort of like proactive headhunting at all, which is essentially what we do all the time. Now, a lot of people started where we do, that's how you get trained. Then they go internal and become great kind of internal recruiters. But it, a lot of times it starts out as an admin function, right? We need to hire a junior person to post some jobs for us and manage that flow and do a first level vetting. But the way a lot of organizations treat it, there isn't that kind of training that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I could see that happening because that happens in other functions too, right? Where there's like, there's a specific task to be done. And it's like, yeah, okay, we hired you to go do that task. And you, you just sort of forget, you know, at the worst, at, at best, it's just kind of like negligence, right? Where it's like, we forget that there's all these underlying skill sets that we should be either training them in or encouraging them to go out and build on their own. Well, and the thing is, recruiting is a sales job, straight up. It doesn't matter if you're an internal recruiter or like an agency recruiter like ours. Like you have to be able to articulate the value your company brings to people and convince them to join your organization or at least want to kind of get in those steps, you know? So anybody who hasn't been through a proper sales training, like isn't going to be very good as a recruiter until they do. So that's also the reason why I think it's it's a, a lot of organizations don't quite understand why it's not just a like a transactional function. It's that these are the people on the front lines, you know, putting your face of the organization in front of people, talking to people every single day, are you giving them the ammo, the content, the access to the hiring managers to know the jobs like the back of their hand and know the pitch to your company extremely well so it comes off as impressive? Or is it just, hey, go find me somebody, figure it out, you know? It's also your brand, you know? So that's that's another thing you have to kind of take into account. If you were starting, like if you were earlier in your career as a recruiter or you were in one of these jobs and you were like, you know what? James, you're right. Like I could be doing more here. Like what are the most valuable skills, like one or two that are worth investing in right off the bat to have an outsized impact on your ability to actually do this job? I guess let me break this down into I think that the biggest opportunity in recruiting is getting your department heads, your leaders to be thought leaders. That's what moves the needle and gets people interested in joining your organization. And when we're doing those surveys, I was talking about for our employer content show, like every salesperson we interviewed, like they want to know who their manager is. They want to know who their leader is. Every marketing person, same thing. And so your ability to interface as a recruiter with business users and get them sold on the idea that there's tremendous value in them. It's not so much about like personal branding nonsense. But it's more about just, you know, you should be a thought leader if you're a CMO or a CTO. Like you should have opinions on things. And if you can articulate those things in whatever form makes the most sense for you, whether it's social media or Twitter, whether it's just a few videos or you're doing a Zoom like we are right here and you're interviewing the person, like there's a million ways of doing it. Have them on your podcast, turn it into evergreen content. Like that has tremendous value from a recruiting standpoint. And the, the companies that have very vocal and insightful leaders have a way easier time interviewing. So, but back to your question about as a recruiter, like one is to get to that point, I mean, the ability to work with cross-functional teams, you know what I mean? Work with people in different departments, gain their trust and respect and be able to influence them as, okay, this is the plan of how we need to go about this uh, versus, because if you don't, if you can't do that, then they just see you as an order taker. 
So are you someone who's going to be able to collaborate with them, convince them, okay, here's the things we need to try to do for maybe a content perspective, or here's how we need to address interviews, or here's what, you know, the CTO, we need you to, you know, do a podcast appearance so we can feature that somewhere and they, they're bought in, or is it just, they're going to say, just find me people. And then you're stuck in that. So that's a tremendous skill. So that that's one I would say first is like just having kind of the business acumen and, and ability to influence others. You know, it's funny. So maybe saying that a different way or what I heard you say in there, if I'm synthesizing it is that you have to, on the one hand, be a thought leader and be really good at communicating and at like directing other people. And then on the flip side, you also have to be really good at listening to their needs. So you have to be willing to like go into these different departments and really ask questions and listen and understand. And that's how you build that. I mean, I think that's how you build trust with people, right? Is you try to find the problems they have and then help them solve those problems. So it's like both skill sets that you have to learn, right? You have to be able to like listen and then you also have to be an expert in what you're doing so that you can apply your craft to solve their problems. Absolutely. And the thing is like, what I'm talking about is not like unheard of in other areas. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of like business analysts and like, this is like part of their job to do every day. It's just that like recruiters fall in that trap of just being an order taker and a paper pusher. And that's not, it's not gonna be effective for you in your career, but also your organization shouldn't want someone and that's their job. They should want people who can kind of take this kind of view of, of being a, a true business person and being able to kind of solve larger problems and work with others. So yeah. anyway. Well, that's one of the things I I find interesting about these conversations is like, I have you on and we talk about recruiting. I have somebody else on and we talk about leadership. I have somebody else on and we talk about sales. And it's like, we're all kind of talking about the same thing. Yeah, Like the the principles apply. And I think like, as I was doing more and more episodes of this show, I was kind of worrying that we were going to run out of content because I was like, the principles are kind of all the same. And so do we just like keep rehashing the principles? I do think it's actually important to keep rehashing the principles and like looking at them from different angles because people absorb them differently. But ultimately, there's just like a couple basic things you need to form relationships with people and get people to follow you if you're a leader, and to create a good environment and to be productive. Yeah, 100%. Everyone needs a little more range. Yeah, it's ultimately what it comes down to, I think. Yeah, exactly. So how are you we, we talked about content a little bit here regarding to recruiting? Where are you seeing employees engaging with content today? So like if I, you know, if I'm TA leader and I want to go out and become a thought leader, like, am I creating my own blog? Am I putting that on the company website? Is it video on LinkedIn? Like where, where are the actual, where are the fish, you know, where are the employee, where are potential employees actually engaging? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it kind of depends on your area in the B2B area. LinkedIn's obviously like in my area, it's LinkedIn's the home run because like my audience I'm selling to you know, is people who need to hire and everyone need, or people who need to look for a job. And those people are on LinkedIn all day. So it's kind of like a captive audience. I think that, but it also kind of depends on what you do. Like if you're more, more of a tech focused tech leader area, like Twitter is, I think a better platform. There's a lot of kind of, there's a whole business thought leader section of Twitter where it's a huge thing. The newsletter realm has blown up. I don't know if you followed that a lot, but um, turns out that like no one reads blogs, but if you email people your blog, they might actually read it. And that's the thing that's like Substack and everyone else kind of figured out. So it's becoming really popular. And there's all kinds of people that are making a living basically writing newsletters, which is a blog that you email out. So those are probably some of the, in terms of if you're talking about like a person, you know what I mean, trying to kind of create stuff for those kind of mediums. Those are kind of the ones I would say are kind of most fundamental. And then podcast, what you're doing. Is probably the one that I missed. What's your take on podcasts right now? Because it was kind of rare still a year and a half ago 
but podcasts have exploded, right? This one and others. What's your take on the state of podcasts, how effective they actually are, where people are listening to them? So that's the thing. I don't listen to any podcast. I don't even listen to my podcast. Like I just don't have time. I feel like podcast was a commute thing. Like when people would like drive to the office, they would listen to it or, or whatever. So like I, when I'm sitting around my house, I'd rather like watch Netflix than watch a podcast. I don't know. It's just me. But I, I think the value of podcast, you know, most of them don't get tremendous amounts of listens, but it's really about the the high touch you have with your audience. You know, it doesn't, you're going for one or two people that really matter that you can potentially sell to or form a business relationship with. And that's a win. And I think that Joe Rogan has broken everyone's minds into thinking you can do a podcast and you're going to make a billion dollars off it, which is, that's not realistic. Like you're talking about, you know what I mean? Just kind of becoming a, a thought, like your microcosm, like the US want to kind of become more of a thought leader in that space or just have good conversations or meet good people, you know, is really the goal. So I, I think they have a lot of legs, but you have to you have to be realistic in terms of what does good look like, what's an a what's an effective or what's an objective that you're going to be happy with, you know. And I think that I think the vanity metrics on social has really broken everyone's brains too, you know. Like you see, some people have these mega audiences, but they don't really seem to say much. And you know, there's like, how are they doing it? Why can't I do that? Why isn't this working? But is it getting you business? Are you meeting new people? Then it's working, you know, like forget about how many views or how many listens and stuff you have. And that replies to podcasts or social or anything else. You know, it really comes down to the only thing that like for me, the only thing that matters is are we getting business out of this, you know, and or slash are we hiring more easily because of this? And that's absolutely yes on both cases. So I don't even worry about like views and listens and stuff like that. It's just comes, you just, you know, it's working when you start seeing kind of either people wanting to work with you from a business standpoint or from a hiring standpoint. I don't know what your objective is, but I'm sure there's, there's some sort of business angle, you know? Well, it's funny, you know, my, so I work with an editor on this now. I did the first eight episodes completely by myself and then was like, this isn't sustainable because I was spending three nights a week doing the editing and wasn't talking to my wife. And I was like, this isn't going to work. So I hired an editor and his first question was like, what's the goal for this? And I laid out my goals which I'll tell you in a second, but I laid out my goals and he goes, all right, good. Like we can work together. He goes, I can't say how many people are like, oh, I want to be like Joe Rogan. And he's like, I just won't work with those people because you, you're not, you're not going to be Joe Rogan. And so, you know, my, my goals for this are just like a couple different things. So one is to potentially get more business out of this. But I think that that's the byproduct of creating good, helpful content for the people that I engage with in my business. I think that's the first thing, right? It's like, I think you get people who get in and you're like, oh, I just want to sell my stuff. And that this never that's, works. That never There's works. Like no you actually, yeah. you have to be a member of the community. You actually have to be engaged in the community. You have to like the community and you have to be a thought leader in that community. So that's one was just to like, think more, communicate more, learn more myself about the community and like provide value for that community. And then the other side was like, if that's the only reason I'm doing it, I'm not going to keep doing it. And so it needs to be intrinsically valuable. And I actually like, I threw up like all the topics that my potential buyer market would be interested in. And then I threw up all the topics that I would potentially be interested in. And so there was a lot of like business, human resources related stuff. And then there was a lot of like personal development, psychology, behavior, science stuff. And I literally like popped up at four in the morning one day and was like, people business that's it. Like that's the show like that, that blends all of this. I get to blend it all together. It's incredibly fun for me, but it's also very, hopefully very valuable for the listeners. And so that's like, that's how I built this show out. I like it. 
That was probably, I mean, was this how many aside, we didn't need to go down. Uh, so as of this week that we're recording this, it'll be 53. It took you 53 episodes to get me on. Like, I feel hurt. Like, you really wound me. You know, I feel like there's a right time and place for everything. So for everybody listening, James and I have known each other for a long time, actually outside of these circles. Probably uh, 10 years, yeah. At least, yeah, at this point. And yes, I had, you know, I reached out. You actually connected me with Nate. Nate came on the show. And I was like, okay, James has to come on the show at some point. I just like need to find that time. And then I saw something about the return to office. And I was like, oh, now's the time because I I feel like your content is like so relevant. So I'm glad I waited, even though, sorry, if you were like, OB, what the hell are you doing? Why don't we get into that? I don't think we even do we even touch on that yet. I know I was, I was trying to prepare all my remote work hot takes and stuff, but I don't even know. If we- <laughs> yeah. So let's get into it. So what what are your hottest takes on the state of remote work? I mean, the hottest take I have for the state of remote work, if you're an agency recruiter and your company's forcing you back to 100% on site, call me. I want to talk. I, I want to poach you out of your organization. Like, it's just absolutely ridiculous. That's And the funny thing is, is like, we just, we we had this epiphany, like maybe it really is that easy. I think like me and two of my coworkers just posted just that, like on LinkedIn, like last week, and we got like 10 people were interviewing based off this. Like, oh, wow. So there's a lot of takes and a lot of counter takes. And I think there's a lot of confirmation bias here, right? So some people are like insistent that like on-site is the way to go because of like lost productivity and culture. By the way, I think this is all garbage. And then other people, you know, think the opposite. Like I was actually on a call. I run a weekly networking group where it's a bunch of sales leaders, you know, and I heard both takes. I had one person who's working at home for 25 years and he runs a sales org and says, everyone's doing great. I had someone, there was someone else said, well, we have everybody back on site. There's way more energy. Then like the leader of the group said, okay, but does anyone have any data? Does anyone have any actual data on what's more effective? And you can't even, the problem is you can't even factor in like sales efficiency of the last year. Cause everything's so skewed by like the pandemic happening and then going back, you know, and there really isn't any good data, but I've seen people, I've seen takes, and I think there was one in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times recently. The traditional thinking is, this is what like Jamie Dimon and like a bunch of other executives think that like collaboration and creativity happens through spontaneous like interactions at work. But do you have any evidence of that either? I look at how creative everyone had to get in the past year working from home. And it's probably been the most like creative time of like the past 10 years of people figuring stuff out. That None of that was done because they bumped into each other in the office. So I think a lot of that's garbage. And the thing is, I don't see studies talking about the productivity gains or losses. And a lot of it's just common sense. When you don't have people bothering you and stopping by your desk every day, you can get more done. Like, I don't need a study to tell me that you can literally get more things done during a day when you have more interrupted time. Like, it's just like common sense. I mean, there are downsides, though, too. Like, there's things people haven't figured out. Like, training younger people is harder when you're not around you. If you're trying to train recruiters or salespeople, and they're not like in your line, you can't hear what they're doing. It's going to be harder to, to, to train. So that's where some of the trickier topics come up. And in, in terms of like, how do you do hybrid work? How do you kind of get the best of both worlds? But I, but here's the hill I'll die on. I think a lot of this is irrelevant. Everything I just said, irrelevant. Because the only one thing that matters is, can you attract and retain talent? Full stop. If you are hiring 100% remote, you have an infinitely larger talent pool than if you're not. There are people who have lived in smaller cities, smaller markets that were hamstrung, only had a couple companies they could potentially work at. All of a sudden, the world's their oyster. Every major, like whether it's technology or digital marketing or whatever. Companies right now are clients. If they're open to 100% remote, we can give them way more candidates and way more options than they ever could before. And on the flip side of that, the number one reason why people leave, we're hearing why people want to leave their company is because they think the 
you know, the return to work policy enforcement is bogus. Like their company said, okay, everyone back in the, the Morgan Stanley thing, everyone back hundred percent by October. Like, dude, their employees hate it right now. Like they're all trying to find a way out of there if they can. The ones who are actually in the financial services part might be stuck because that whole industry is kind of collaborated, but like they're in technology or digital marketing, like <laughs> good luck keeping those people because it's not so much that everybody wants to work from home, but everybody who's experienced proved in the past year that they can get the job done and they, they deserve the right to have a little bit of flexibility. And if you're not willing to give that to them, like you're not gonna be able to retain people. So do you see people opting out if they're being asked to come in at all? Or like, are people like sort of accepting of the hybrid model? Like, yeah, okay, I get that. Like, it's nice to be around people two or three days a week. But like, if you make me come back five days a week, I'm out. The five days a week out is definitely a thing. I mean, we started seeing that, like that was the biggest mistake a lot of companies made a year ago. There were a year ago this time, there were companies saying, okay, we we want to get everybody back in the office by September, which was like the most bone because then we had a whole nother surge of COVID, you know what I mean? And they all had egg on their face. But at that point in time, that was an absurd thing to say because we didn't know if it was possible, but really they showed their cards about how much they just don't give a shit about their employees. If you're doing well and getting the job done and there's a pandemic going on, why are you making plans to force people back way too early, you know? And that's when we first started seeing people reach out to us, just like completely dissatisfied. There were not a lot of job opportunities at that point in time because the market still kind of sucked, but that bugs in their head. Like they're, they know it's time for them to move. Hybrid, so here's the challenge with hybrid. I think most people actually want theoretically a hybrid environment. We've done a lot of surveys, both of our employees and others out there. And it's like, it's kind of like a bell curve. 68% want to be in the office two days or three days a week. I don't think it's so much people want to be in the office. I think it's they want to be out of their homes because everyone's kind of sick of being cooped up. Yeah. Be but, around other people. Yeah. I, there is a desire to have that kind of interaction with people. The challenge with hybrid work, though, is this is one, how much office space do you really need? Because I, I don't have the answer to these questions, by the way. We're trying to figure this out, too. Do you need space for every single person at the company if they're all there the same day? Because if you're doing hybrid work, you still need to have a justification for why they need to be in the office those days, if it's two days a week, right? Okay, what is it about those two days that you can only get done in the office, you can't the other days? Is it training? Is it certain like critical meetings that need to be done in person? Like you still have to have like a reason for it, not just because it feels right, or we like, you know what I mean? Because if you don't, then how do you like, so if, if it's for training purposes for junior people, which I think is the thing that makes most sense, that's great. Okay, so you need all your junior people there the same day with whoever can train them. How much office space do you need for that? Or is it you want to have company-wide meetings because you see some value in it? Okay, we don't need people coming in every day, but we'd like to have the whole company here a day a week. We can like hash through some important like you know stuff. Okay, how much space do you need for that? So no one really knows this one. You know, it's kind of tough. There's not like you can't change this. You know, we have quantum physics figured out where we can like expand and contract the size of actual rooms because no matter what, like the rest of the week, if you've if you apply, like you've had a lot of space kind of not being used. Okay, here's the other thing that's tricky too. So we did a lot of surveys where we had quite a few people who want to be in the office because they want to get out of the house, they want to be around their coworkers. They really like that. You know, let's say two days a week. Problem is, those other coworkers don't want to be there. So my one friend Matt, like he's really he's really hoping to come back in the office two days a week so he can hang out with the team those two days, get some stuff done, get away from the kids he's got running around the house. I say this lovingly, but no one else on the team wants to come in. So he's like, "All right, I guess I won't come in." You know, so. Even when you start kind of looking at things on that lens, like there's a lot of, I think the answer to this is you just have to kind of kind of see how it goes. Don't lock yourself into long-term leasing commitments if you don't have to. See what's going to kind of work. But well, and I, don't 
the other thing I was thinking as you were talking is like, don't profess like rock solid policies right now. Like there's no need that you have to have this figured out. Zero need. Yeah. Come seven, one or eight, one or nine, one, like, Hey, here's what we're going to try. Like, I think that a little empathy and communication goes a long way too. like, Hey, here's, you know, we understand that this isn't going to be perfect, but we think it's valuable to be, to be back for these reasons. We're going to try it at two days a week and we're going to set this kind of structure. And after a month, we're going to get your feedback and we're going to do it again. Like, even if people are miserable in that setup, like at least they know that they have a voice and they're going to be heard. It's the people who are like, yep, you're going to be back four days a week and we'll see you on Monday. And there's no talking about it. Like those people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel heard here. I'm, I'm out of it. There's just no, like, there's no justification. It's no justification for it. They just want people like I've maintained this. It really is like there's it's people in an older generation who came up through the ranks being in the office and hustle, hustle, hustle. And that's how you become a good employee that just can't let go of that. And now that they're on top, like they're in the office, they want to see their employees working for them. It's that mentality. It's extroverts too. Yeah. It's people who it's when you get a group of leaders who are all extroverts and go well, like, yeah, wouldn't everybody like this? Yeah. Like I've seen, I've seen that happen a couple of times. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's probably someone out there listening to this who loves in office and be like, oh, you guys are wrong. It's just better. You can't make these assumptions. But like, to your point, it's not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have people go in the office ever, but just, there's no reason to just like set a blanket policy without specific reasons or justifications for it. Just see how it goes. You know, like we are right now, we are hundred percent remote with the option of going in the office and people are allowed to go in if they want to, they don't want to, they don't have to yet. We're we've made, so I mentioned we're 70 now. We hired 15 recruiters this year. I think five of them aren't even in Chicago. We've got so many people across the country that, you know, markets where they might not have as many opportunities to work at cool firms because they're smaller markets that were, and they're great. And you can only do that. And you can only take advantage of the talent market if you're open to those types of things and having that kind of fluid and flexibility. So that's from a hybrid standpoint, I say just, as you said, just wait and see how it goes, but there's no reason to, to force things. So, yeah, I guess the other thing too, is like, I mean, if you want to force it, force it, but just understand that there are going to be repercussions, they're going to re- be repercussions of any decision, right? Like if you keep people fully virtual and you get rid of your office, there's going to be repercussions of that. If you make everybody come back five days a week, there's going to be repercussions of that. I think it's just like, figure out what you want as a business and understand that there are going to be consequences and make those just make those investments and go like, hopefully, you know, I think the best businesses probably are, are flexible, right? So they get feedback and they iterate and they change their policies based on what's working, what's not working. But there's no reason you can't do it. Just know that there are a lot of people out there to your point that are looking for virtual and hybrid work. I think that on top of that, I, I think the other thing these companies miss when they, they don't like the consequences you talked about is, you know, we just survived a pandemic where everyone realized they could, they were going to be able to get through this somehow, you know? And I, I still think there's a lot of organizations that think, okay, our employees, they need us. This is their, like, no one's afraid of the whole, the fear of job security has been one of the things that's kept people in jobs. They probably should have left forever. Right. Just like the fear of the unknown, I don't feel like looking for a job. I don't know if I'll find something better. I mean, that's one of the big levers that companies pull just like psychologically, but I don't think they pull the lever. It's just, it's just there. There's always that, that's that, that hesitancy to do something new. But after this, a lot of that's been kind of 
it's been taken away. Like a lot of people are less hesitant. A lot of people are less worried about that kind of stuff. They saw their friends get laid off. Maybe they got laid off and they realized that, Hey, life's and, and they're, they're still here. They still made it somehow people are adaptive. And I think that there's a, a, there's a level of arrogance in some companies where they don't realize that they're, they're your employees. They're not your, they're not your kids or your family and you're stuck with them or they're not stuck with you forever, you know? So. Yeah. Every day they show up as a choice. Yeah. I like that. What are the biggest mistakes you see job seekers making right now? That would have been a better question a year ago or even six months ago. Right now in certain skill sets, if you're an individual contributor, if you're in anything in tech, you can't make any mistakes. <laughs> You know, if you're a recruiter and looking for like, you, you can't make any mistakes. There's certain skill sets that have such high demand that you're going to be fine. Classically, when things are tougher, I think that the, what I, my go-to answer is that there's not enough proactive networking. There's not enough informational interviewing. Informational interviewing, by the way, is not an interview. It's like me talking to you, getting five minutes of your time to understand what your company does. Would you need someone like me? Who do you know? Let me tell you my story just to see if things go anywhere. And people, I think most job seekers are not comfortable with, they, they default to applying to jobs that are posted online, but they miss the people get hired because they know people and people got to know them and their skill set deeper. They get hired because of the interview process. And if you can shortcut that by having more people know you, then you don't, you're not just another like paper on the stack. So there's a lot of tips to that, which I could recommend. But I think that the biggest mistake in normal times that people make is not being proactive enough with just getting out there, meeting new people, finding out what opportunities are out there and just relying too much on Indeed. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you when I had you on, and I was going to ask you this anyway, regardless of where the, the conversation went, but I think one of the things that strikes me about you, knowing you personally the way that I do, is that you have a contrarian or skeptical mindset. I think you've always looked at things your own way, kind of made your own opinions. And I would be curious to know, like, was that just like how you were born? Or is it because you make time for that kind of thought? Or like, what what do you attribute to the fact that you're able to kind of look at what the herd is doing and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't, that makes sense. That doesn't. And like, kind of forge your own path. I think it's a combination of two things. So I've always been a smart ass, as you know. Um, <laughs> and I think that I'm just good at, I've always been good at spotting bullshit, but I just, I just, I say this kind of jokingly, like, I just assume everyone's an idiot, myself included. You know, like, I assume that, like, I've got ideas in my head that are probably wrong, which forces me to think about them more. And like, I'm comfortable, like, I always joke that I, I think I'm always right, but a lot of times that's because I actually, I'll take the opposite view and kind of think through it and just say, am I totally missing something here? But I find life to be absurd in a funny way that it's wherever you, whatever you are, what you're doing, you're surrounded by people like you're going to hear dumb stuff. I just assume that like half the stuff you hear is on a daily basis is going to be wrong. So just like think about it a little bit and kind of reason through it and have fun making fun of it if you spot it, you know. So that's just kind of been my personality. And I just I find it funny. Did you cultivate that in some way? What's that? Like, like, what, like what started that? Just the fact that you were a smart ass and then like. You were like, oh, some of this is true. And you just like kept doing it. I think when I was a child, I realized that I was surrounded by idiots. So, <laughs> I mean, they're, of course I was. They're kids. Kids are stupid. So like, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, none of know. us know what we're talking about. No, it's just, it's, it's fine. The other side of that is I'm, I'm not exempting myself from that. You know, like people are just, 
maybe it was the first time you realize that like when you're in grade school or something that like your teachers don't know everything. In fact, they're not even like, they don't know more than, than you do. You have that, that illusion that your parents know everything, then that you suddenly realize someday, oh, wait, they don't, they just know more than me right now. And take that through the rest of your life that like, I assume anybody, and I say this after touting why you need to become a thought leader, but I assume that every thought leader out there that people follow, like has some of the stuff they're saying is flat out wrong, you know? So maybe think about, don't just get so suckered into somebody because they're a big deal that can't kind of like think about these things more critically and kind of spot them. So not to go off on a tangent, like I quit going on Facebook years ago because I realized it was a time suck. And I'm like, you know, if I'm going to spend time on the internet, like I want to do something that's going to like actually make money. So there's a client of ours. I want, I want to learn more about finance. So I, there's a client of ours, Tasty Trade. I don't know if you've heard of those guys. Yeah. Um, I remember they, talking to you about them. They're a research think tank that actually does data focused analysis on short premium option strategies. So financial derivatives, they don't, pick, and the thing is they don't pick direction. It's not about predicting the stock market. It's about just understanding if you can sell options, call options, put options in certain environments, certain volatility levels, what actually consistently makes money over time. So it's very like, it's easier to wrap your head around once you're into it a little bit, but what you understand is from a kind of understanding how it's kind of like selling insurance or something like that. Like certain things will make money over time. Once you start like kind of following stuff and understanding more about how the the markets work, you realize that like no one on CNBC has any idea what they're talking about. These are just talking heads with no background of finance whatsoever. And every time the market moves, whatever happened that day, they attribute it to that. It's markets are random. They go up and down. Like every time, like there's some big story that happens, doesn't mean it actually affected anything. And I think when I realized that, and when I watch like the financial news and other things like that, you realize that like no one actually in these these shows, a lot of like the old maxims of finance, like sell and may and go away, or the trend is your friend. It's nonsense. Like these things make no sense whatsoever, but they're so ingrained like in our subconscious because like, you know, the financial advisor we talked to one time who by way is a salesperson, not a financial expert told us. So that kind of put the whole thing on steroids because then I started realizing like I'm just that was probably like seven or eight years ago. Like I start thinking more critically about literally everything. So, yeah, I had a similar experience in my career where, you know, I've sort of always even as a, a young guy out of college was selling to much older, generally corporate executives. And I would walk in, and, you know, there's an intimidation factor that like, oh, these people like have all this wisdom and they know all this stuff. And I don't know what it was that actually like made it occur to me, but I sort of gathered over time that like nobody has it figured out. Like none of these people know whether any of the stuff that they're saying is going to work or not. They're just, you know, they have experience and they've got some knowledge and they've like built some skills and they're just putting them into practice in the best way that they can. Maybe it was the fact that like, I felt like I was an imposter and I walked in and they were like, I, you know, I would give my commentary and they'd be like, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do that. And I'd be like, I have like, how did I get the authority to have any influence here? And it's like, oh, anybody with like a thoughtful opinion that's like well-reasoned has the authority to do that because that's all anybody is. Do you have imposter syndrome? Is that what you're telling me right now? Oh, every day. See, I, here's my thing. I've always maintained that imposter syndrome is just another fancy way of saying low self-esteem. Yeah, because <laughs> fine. Call I'll, me out on that, James. I never heard about like I've never seen. I never heard of imposter syndrome until about a year ago. Now it's what's that phenomenon where it's everywhere you look, you see it. Like everyone's always talking about imposter syndrome. I'm just like I don't know. I never really felt like, and I think maybe that's like I've always recognized that really no one has it figured out, knows what they're doing. So what's the difference? But if I look back when I started my career 20 years ago, like 
not only did I not know what I'm doing, but the methods that when I was learning sales, everything that everyone was doing back then that were the experts is dated. It was all wrong. 20 years later, we can realize that there's more efficient ways of running meetings or starting relationships with people or communicating via email. I, we're better copywriters, just things we just do better than we did 20 years ago, kind of all around the board. So obviously we don't have it all figured out now either. So I assume that most of what I'm doing right now is wrong and just challenge yourself to kind of, you know, figure out the next better way of doing things. Yeah. I'm gonna go work on my self-esteem. <laughs> so what are you sick of talking about right now? We talked about LinkedIn earlier. It's definitely, it's a moneymaker for us. It's a great platform for all that stuff. But I'm so sick of people who talk about how to post on LinkedIn on LinkedIn. It drives like the meta, like the amount of like coaches and experts and, and the data boys and here's why you should do it. Like, I feel like half of my feed is just people talking about doing the thing they're doing while they're doing it. As opposed to like, how about you talk about your domain knowledge of your industry or something that I could actually learn from something that'll be insightful, which is why I've kind of ruled out, okay, I got to stop talking about LinkedIn on LinkedIn because it's like the worst possible content. So I think that I got sick of it. I don't want to do it anymore. Although I might have to do like a, I might talk about it once or twice a year just to like lambast everything. But I think that's the worst thing that I got sick of. And my challenge to everyone else would be like, just talk about the damn thing you do for a living instead. Yeah. Not the thing, not the, I don't need, it's, it, it's like going on Facebook and telling people to post more on Facebook. Like why? So I hear you. What aren't people talking enough about? I think that bringing this back to recruiting, which is kind of our core business. I think the thing that is interesting that we're doing now, and we're not the only ones. I think they're, I think a lot of more places are doing this in the UK. I think the U S market is farther behind is creating kind of flipping the recruiting model on its head and creating more interesting, more impactful models that can actually, that are better for you as a firm, but also better for your clients. I'll give you an example. So in recruiting, the thing that everyone's done forever is contingent recruiting, right? So companies will go out, they'll hire quote unquote, air finger quotes, hire five firms and only pay the one that finds a candidate. It's like the most, there's no other industry in the world that would actually agree to these terms. You don't hire five carpenters and pay one of them. You don't hire five lawyers and pay one of them. Like no one does this except for recruiters. Fees are asked because of this. Everyone fees have to go up. They're astronomically high. Candidate experience goes down because like you've got all these different firms, like just trying to go as fast as possible to define the person because if they don't, they're not going to get it. So there are all kinds of corners get cut. You've got not very strategic. It turns into glorified sourcing. You're not actually doing the real work behind the scenes to help your client out. We've for all intents and purposes, we our legacy clients that only use us, we still do some of that work with, but just being full transparency, all the work we're doing now has become retained work. We do a lot of engagements where we have people who actually are embedded with our clients doing not just sourcing candidates, but they're actually like setting up the interviews, doing the outreach, managing the ATS, setting up the ATS, all the behind the, the scenes stuff that our clients need, still working with and doing those other functions overall. It's, it's more value added. So the clients actually get more out of it. They also, on a per hire basis, pay less. Because when we know that our time's not being wasted and we're at like 97% efficiency versus 30% efficiency, it's a more efficient model really for everybody. And I know that I think that it's going to be interesting to see five years from now where the industry is in terms of the relationships between hiring companies and their firms and how many more organizations go the route that we have. 
it's like I said, I know there's a lot more of this like organizations in the UK. It seems like it's getting more traction there. I know a few others kind of off the top of my head, but I think that the whole, the business process of the industry is getting disrupted. And I think that's something that organizations internally that would hire places like ours are starting to become more aware of, but there's still so many that have never even thought of this stuff yet. And they're just kind of stuck in the old model and they're paying more than they should be and giving a crappy experience to the people they're probably getting from these firms they work with. So I got one more question. This is the big esoteric one. Was that boring? (laughs) No, that was good. All right. That was great. It's all about what, what you feel. So there's no wrong answer. Last question. What in your mind is the purpose of business? Putting food on the table. I think that was the shortest answer we've had uh, by word count. So that's That's, good. That's why we do any of this, man. I mean, it's all just everyone's, you would not do work if it wasn't just for getting a paycheck. You do all the other fun things you do in life, right? So, and you can say, well, if you're, if you're doing what you enjoy, that doesn't feel work, get out of here. (laughs) Like there's some, if that's the case, why aren't you doing for free right now? You know? No, I think that it's it's just the purpose of business is just to make ends meet, to allow you to to make the money you need to do other things you love. So, where do you think art comes into that? Like the business of art, you know, like painters and people making NFTs, or <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. Are we calling NFTs art at this point? But <laughs> yeah, I guess this is getting a little too esoteric. But just thinking about people who have been able to take things like being a surf instructor or you know a painter sculptor my wife ballet dancer you know like do yeah. getting paid for doing the things that they actually really do enjoy and would do even if you didn't pay them to do it i mean you could say the same thing about being a professional athlete or you know being a professional gamer but there's i think there are certain people with exceptional abilities and skill sets where there's enough interest in what they're so good at some inherent skill they've developed or cultivated that people want to would pay them just to watch it and unfortunately it's not not everyone can do that. It's good work if you can get it, but it's not something I think you can expect the Nobody's populace to signing up to watch you make recruiting calls. <laughs> recruiting calls, or I mean, they should sign up to watch me lift weights because, as you know, I'm pretty pretty fun good at that. But <laughs> I've done it for free. I've sat there and watched you for free, James. It's always a pleasure. Really appreciate your perspective. I think there's a bunch of good stuff in here that individuals and and corporate leaders can take away. So appreciate you making the time. Yeah. Obi, thanks for having me on. Good luck with editing this thing so it makes sense. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.